Good morning, ladies. Welcome. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the teaching team, and I think you all know how much I love being part of Women in the Word and studying the Word of God with like-minded women. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. Um, Sixteen years ago, uh, one of my three awesome, wonderful boys was about to graduate from college. And as young men have a tendency to do, he made a miscalculation. He broke a rule that he thought would get him a slap on the wrist from those in charge of his graduation. But instead of a slap on the wrist, he got a punishment that almost cost him his scholarship and his degree, his graduation. And of course, he had to call home and tell his parents about this great new development in his life. Uh, And he actually remembers the words I said to him, which I don't remember all that much about it, but he remembers. Um, He says that my words to him that night when he called to tell us that uh, he was in a bit of a scrape, Uh, My words to him were, be teachable, be teachable, do not waste this hard time, use this hard time to learn whatever it is God is uh, wanting you to learn here. Um, I won't share with you what I said when I got off the phone from hearing him, uh, because we were going to be on the hook for his $300,000 scholarship, Um, but the reason I know he remembers what I said to him is because a few years ago, I was at a promotion ceremony. His dad and I were for him uh, in the Air Force. And he spoke to the pilots that were in his command that day. And he actually said to them, during one of the most challenging times in his life, his mom's words to him had been, be teachable and learn the lessons you need to learn. And he was sharing that to them because he was sending these pilots off to be a fly in a war and there was going to be the fog of war. He wanted them to be teachable in the midst of those hard times. Um, and I confess, it was a memorable day for me. Not because he was being celebrated, that was fun too, but it was totally memorable and all you moms out there will understand this because one of my kids actually remembered something that I said to them because this was the teenager that every time I would try to tell him something when he started to drive or when he went off to college, he would roll his eyes and literally go, wonk, 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 mom. Um, So it was a miracle. It was a miracle in my life. Now, as I've studied the life of David in these two chapters, if I was David's mama, I can hear myself now saying the same thing to him. David, be teachable even in this hard time. Learn the lessons. Don't waste a minute of this. Learn the lessons God has for you. I think Deb told you uh, last week that David was actually on the run for Saul for almost 10 years before he was anointed king. And God, through these hard circumstances of David being a fugitive, has so much to teach David. I know you've probably already seen some of the things David needs to learn. And we have a great opportunity today to be teachable as well as we learn a few lessons from David's life as a fugitive. So open your Bibles with me, and we're going to start in chapter 21, verse 1. 
And then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came uh, to meet David trembling. And he said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with a young man for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand. There is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly the women have uh, been kept from us as always when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from them before the Lord to be placed, replaced by hot bread from the day it is take, on the day it is taken away. <clears throat> now, Nob is located just a few miles from Jerusalem. You can probably find it on your map. And at this point in Israel's history, it is the location of the tabernacle and a community of priests that serve in the tabernacle. Now, we saw in chapter 19 <clears throat> that David when he was running from Saul that time, Saul's sanctuary was Samuel in Ramah. And now David's on the run again for his life, and he seeks sanctuary uh, with the priest Ahimelech. And it's a great testimony. I love this about David. Um, great testimony of his relationship with the Lord, isn't it? When his life falls apart, it takes an unexpected wrong turn, and he becomes a fugitive guess where he goes? Guess where he goes? His first instinct is to seek out the Lord, to seek out the Lord's priest, to seek out the Lord's place of worship. He's obviously not prepared to be a fugitive here, is he? Because he doesn't have food or a weapon, two things that are going to be important to him if he's going to sustain his escape from Saul. And when Ahimelech sees David here, He's afraid, isn't he? He's trembling, and he questions David. He's a little bit suspicious. Ahimelech is a sharp guy. Um, he says, why are you alone? Because David is Saul's most successful general. So Ahimelech is wary of why David has appeared without his army of men. Now, he may believe that David has come with orders from Saul to do harm to the priests, and that's why he's come by himself. Or perhaps he even suspects, because he is a sharp guy, that David is in a little bit of trouble here. But David answers him and says, the king has charged me with a matter. Now, you probably talked about it in your small groups, that is either an outright lie or at the very least, if we want to give David a little bit of leeway here, we could say it was a deceptive use of the word king because David frequently uses that word king to describe the Lord in his Psalms. Um, but what David fails to clarify here for Ahimelech is which king is he referring to? Is it an outright lie because he's referring to Saul? Or is he hedging his bets here a little bit and he's referring to Yahweh, his God? If it is Yahweh, he's not technically lying uh, to the priest, 
But he is deceiving Ahimelech, isn't he? He wants Ahimelech to believe he's talking about Saul, allowing him to assume that he's there on Saul's business. And he asks Ahimelech for five loaves of bread, or even says, whatever you got. I'll take whatever you got. Um, but what Ahimelech has is only the holy bread. Sometimes it's called the show bread in the scriptures. And that is the bread that is placed on the tabernacle, on the golden table, in the holy place, next to the lampstand. We have a slide here, I believe. Curtis, you can put it up. Um, there is the priest replacing that holy bread on that golden table every Sabbath, and they place 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. And every week, the old bread that was removed is eaten only by the priests and their family. And so since David's not a priest, technically, it was unlawful for him to eat the holy bread, which is why Ahimelech asked David here if he and his men have maintained ritual cleanliness by abstaining from sexual relationships that day. Um, and David's assurance that he and his men, when they are on a mission, are always ritually clean, according to Levitical law. Do you want to look it up later? It's Leviticus 15, 18. Um, because he assures him that they are ritually clean, uh, that allows Ahimelech to show mercy to David and to give him the holy bread that is normally only eaten by the priest. What was interesting to me is that Jesus also uses this event as an example of the truth that the spirit of the law is meant to preserve life and to benefit those in need. The law is not meant to punish the nation of Israel. The law is meant to make their life better. Look at Mark 2.25 on your verse sheet, and this is Jesus speaking. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those uh, who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest? and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is um, a great uh, point that in God's economy, life is more precious and more sacred than even the bread that is placed in his presence or the law that requires it to be eaten only by the priest. And Ahimelech, uh, I think we see Ahimelech's heart here because that he honors that life-giving spirit of the law by giving David the bread he needs. David is going to need food to sustain his life. But bread isn't all David needs, is it? David also needs a weapon because in his haste to escape Saul, he has taken nothing with him. Look at verse 8. And then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine with whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold it is here wrapped in the cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that, give it to me. 
Now, David may actually know that Goliath's sword is there at the tabernacle at uh, God. He, it's either the, at Nob. It's either there for safekeeping, or perhaps it was a historical relic, relic, like a monument, a testimony to God's great power in the defeat of Goliath. Um, and you notice David, even if he knows it's there, he doesn't ask for it. He doesn't say, give me Goliath's sword. He says, give me a sword, a spear, give me a weapon. But when uh, Ahimelech graciously restores that sword to David. He gladly takes it. And he exclaims here as he takes it in his hands, there is none like it. I don't think he's really talking about the sword here, even as he holds it. I think that as he holds that sword, he's remembering God's great power, God's provision, God's protection when he walked into that riverbed to face the great giant Goliath. He's remembering what God did for him here as he says, there's nothing like it, nothing like God's power and protection in a moment of need. He's not idolizing the sword, I don't think here. I think he's honoring God. But unfortunately, this exchange of food and the sword attract the attention of a bad guy, don't they? They attract the attention of Saul's servant and probably his spy. Doeg the Edomite, and uh, I've talked to five different people how to pronounce this guy's name, um, and everybody had a different idea, so we're calling him Dougie. Um, uh, so Dougie, he even sounds like a villain, doesn't he, Doeg the Edomite? Um, no one is sure why he happened to be at the tabernacle that day. He may have been conducting some sort of business for Saul there to offer a sacrifice, or um, there was one thought that, uh, since he wasn't a good guy, that uh, he may have had some sort of penance that he had to do at the tabernacle. But that fateful encounter that he has with David and Ahimelech, watching what happens and goes on here, is going to have serious consequences that we're going to see later. Now, despite his questionable deception of Ahimelech, David's first instinct here to seek refuge in the Lord uh, as he becomes a fugitive really is spot on. It really is spot on. His immediate needs for food and for a weapon have been straight, met straight from the Lord's own hand, from the Lord's sanctuary with the very best that the Lord has to offer. Um, you know, Ahimelech didn't give David his leftover lunch, did he? He could have done that. He gave him the holy bread from the Lord's very table, the one that has sat in the Lord's presence. Um, and he gives him not just any weapon, he gives him the weapon that has shown God's own power in the face of the attack by the Philistine. It's a sword that is going to constantly remind David of God's power and his protection, and his great love for the nation of Israel. When David runs first to the Lord for refuge, God gives him his best. He gives him his best. And David's heartfelt understanding that God is always his best refuge is actually the heart of many of David's psalms. Look at Psalm 51 with me. This is David writing this. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you... 
my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. You know, David's life, uh, David's response when his life is falling apart here is a great lesson that we can learn today too. Um, And that lesson is when life falls apart, ladies, and it will, if it hasn't yet, it will run as fast as you can to the Lord. Run as fast as you can to the Lord. Cling to his word every minute. Be constant in prayer, talking to him and listening to him. And take comfort in his presence. He's our best refuge always. And he gives us only his best when we stand in the shadow of his wings. Psalm 46 has always been my go-to reminder of God's perfect provision and protection. When my life falls apart, look at Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I don't know about you, but there have been some times in my life when I felt like the world was crumbling under my feet. It's a great lesson for us to remember what David did here. When life falls apart, run straight to the Lord. He has the best of everything waiting there for us. Okay, let's read a little more. Look at verse 10 with me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in their dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and um, made marks on doors of the gate, let spittle run uh, down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Okay, so in his fear of Saul, David next flees to Gath, uh, which is a pretty much due west of Jerusalem. And um, the king there is the Philistine king Achish. And it is absolutely a mystery as to why David seeks refuge in Achish. I looked and looked to find someone that had some sort of reasonable thought about why David goes to Achish and everyone said, not a clue why he would go there. It seems to be that David is simply letting his fear drive his thinking here, to guide his path. It would be possible that he thought that since Achish was also an enemy of Saul's, that Achish would provide some sort of protection for him. Or maybe he was thinking that he wouldn't be recognized among the Philistines. And so he could be this anonymous uh, person living there and no one would report him to Saul. But, you know, both of those options are pretty short-sighted on David's part, uh, which we see here. In fact, Chuck Swindoll said something I cracked me up. He said, David would have been as conspicuous in Gath as Dolly Parton in a convent. <laughs> yeah. So, and the reason for that is David 
was an enemy of the Philistines who had humiliated them by killing their most famous champion, Goliath. And then he had killed hundreds of the Philistines as well as the bride price for his uh, bride, Michael, if you remember that. Um, the people recognize him. He's a celebrity in the Philistine world. And when David's brain finally kicks in here, and he realizes that Achish and his advisors are going to view him as a huge threat to their safety, he comes up with this plan to outsmart them by pretending to be insane. And he does what he thinks um, an insane person would do. He runs around Gath, marking on different buildings, drooling down down his beard, babbling, and it works. It works because in the ancient Near East, mental health issues were thought to be an affliction of the pagan gods. And if you had anything to do with this mentally ill person, you ran the risk of having that affliction in your life as well. Um, and so Achish wants nothing to do with him. He doesn't even want to kill him because he's afraid that would cause, uh, disturb the pagan gods. In fact, this verse cracked me up. Do I lack madmen? I mean, I thought that, yeah, that made me laugh when I read that. He does not want another um, insane person. Um, so it gives David the chance to escape Achish. Now, David's mama, unfortunately, was not there to tell him to be teachable. But there's a great lesson for David here about fear. Um, even with his life on the line, David should not let fear cloud his judgment or muddy his discernment. Because what happens when fear clouds our thinking? We end up in the enemy's camp acting like a crazy person. And that's exactly what's happening to David here. He's in the enemy's camp acting like a crazy person. When fear of life's consequences cloud our judgment and many of our decisions, what do we do? We make poor decisions. We end up uh, just like David in a place we shouldn't be doing things we didn't intend to do. Um, but the Psalms that David wrote during this exact time in his life when he was running from Saul, when he was in Gath with Achish, give us great understanding into David's teachable moments and the lessons he was actually learning. We see his actions here in chapter 21. We simply see what he's doing, and it looks um, a little bit uh, not wise to us. But if you go to the Psalms, what you see is David's teachable heart during this time. David was learning not just to react to his fear. David was learning to battle his fear with faith and trust in the Lord. Look at Psalm 56 with me. He wrote this during this time. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose words I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? 
take time to read this whole psalm later if you haven't already read it. Maybe it's going to be your go-to place uh, when fear is making you crazy. He repeats the words in this psalm, In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Several times. David's teachable moment on the run from Saul is ours as well. Because when our life falls apart, we've got to battle our fears too, don't we? We've got to battle our fears with faith and trust in the Lord. And we should fear and revere only the Lord. We don't need to fear the world or the things of the world that threaten us. Look what David says in Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them and delivers them. Just like David, when we fear the Lord instead of the world and the things that we think the world can do to us, we're going to remember we have his supernatural protection and we can battle our fear with faith and trust in him as well. Okay, let's look at our next chapter. Look at chapter 22, verse 1 to me, with me. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter and so gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were... And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So we see that the crazy act works for David. Achish lets him leave unharmed. And now he travels southwest of Jerusalem and takes up hiding in what must be a huge cave in the limestone foothills around Adullam. Um, and it must not be too big of a secret that that's where David is because people began to join him. They're figuring out somehow where David is. And first, his family joins him there. The reason they do is they are at risk as well. They've got a target on their chest because they are David's family and Saul could possibly go after them and that's what they are fearing. And along with David's family, 400 men begin to trickle into this cave to find David. And these are men that are also refugees for various reasons. Um, They are probably also oppressed by Saul for some reason. They have gotten on the wrong side of Saul. We see that Saul isn't always a good guy, is he? And he's paranoid to boot. So um, they have identified uh, in, in that oppression by Saul with David's plight somehow. And David takes every one of them in. He becomes their leader and their commander. David is sort of the Robin Hood of his day. And David knows the risk that his family is under. They stay with him. So he decides to travel to Moab, which is on the other side of the Jordan River, just southeast of Jerusalem. And that is the land, actually, of David's great-grandmother, Ruth. If you know the story of Ruth and Naomi and... They traveled back from Moab into Israel, Ruth did with Naomi, but that Moab is the land of his great-grandmother. He probably has relatives still there, and he asked 
uh, for protection for his parents from the king of Moab. And Saul is actually a mutual enemy of uh, Moab. So David, along with asking protection, probably is trying to secure some help and support uh, from the king of Moab as well. We also see, we didn't read the verse, but a few verses down you see the name of the prophet Gad here in this section for the first time. And this prophet is interesting because he really replaces Samuel in David's life and he becomes uh, David's prophet throughout the reign of David's kingship. And just as Samuel had advised David, Gad now seems to be the prophet who communicates God's instructions to him. And Gad's message from the Lord to David is don't remain in Moab. Your people are in Judah. You have been anointed king of Israel, so you need to return to Judah and your people. And David obeys. That's exactly what he does, even though he's on the run from Saul. Now, when I read these verses, what stood out to me here as David flees from Saul is his willingness his willingness to care and care for and lead others, even though he's wearing the t-shirt with the bullseye on it. He's the one that has the target on his chest. He's the one that's truly the object of Saul's lethal wrath. He's the one being hunted here. And yet, what does he do? He stops and takes care of his family. He goes to the king of Moab. He takes in society's displaced men who need a purpose and a place in his life. He could have turned every one of them away because I imagine that a crowd this size um, attracts a little attention. If you're in a cave with 400 plus people, it's gonna be pretty easy for Saul to find you, isn't it? You know, I was also thinking about um, how hard it is uh, when our lives fall apart, how hard it is to have the physical and emotional energy to do anything except what you can barely do. Get yourself dressed, get your life moving. Um, and yet, we don't see that here with David. David apparently has the physical and emotional energy to take his eyes off his own struggles and look after those who need his help. His actions here are our teachable moment. Life's hard times can uh, cause us to see only ourselves and forget that all around us, even in our hard time, all around this room, there are women who are hurting. They may be hurting as well, even as you're hurting. David's lesson here is that lesson where it says, you know, it's not always about us. It's not always about me even when our life is hard. Because in the midst of our own pain, it's the right thing to do to stop and show compassion to others. Look at Galatians 6.2 on your verse sheet. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And Philippians 2.4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interest of others. You've probably been watching the news uh, just like me in the last couple of weeks, and I saw some pretty dramatic uh, footage of international aid workers who had been staffing an orphanage in Kyiv in the Ukraine for special needs orphans. And these were toddlers and babies, and it was a hard job and a hard situation. They were understaffed and overworked, and these are kids that need an incredible amount of care 
and that was before the war with Russia. And when the bombing started in Kyiv, these women who were already in the midst of hard circumstance in their own lives in this orphanage, they all had the opportunity to leave the country because most of them were foreign nationals and they were gonna be able to uh, get out before Kyiv was overrun by the Russians. But what do you think they did? They chose to stay, stay with those infants, stay with those babies that had special needs, continue the tube feedings and the diaper changes. And the footage I saw was them all huddled in this tiny underground bomb shelter, no heats, no lights, uh, not very many um, supplies at all, but they were uh, taking care of all these crying babies and the bombing was happening and the dust was falling down on them as they were doing all that. And what I noticed about it is they were all so busy taking care of these little people, they hardly noticed the bombing you know, was going on because they were just doing what they do. They were showing compassion to others, even when they were in the midst of a hard time. Uh, it's one of my favorite teachable moments for David as we see him take care of others. Okay, look at verse six with me. Let's keep reading in chapter 22. Now, when Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarack tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as, uh, as at this day. So we see Saul is definitely paranoid here. He's not just a worrier. He's not asking questions. He has passed over to straight up paranoia. He thinks everyone is out to get him, including Jonathan, including his servant, and that John David is spending his time plotting his death. And he presents his case um, of being so persecuted by everyone around him that the infamous villain Dougie the Edomite gives him the news that David has been to see Ahimelech at Nob and the priest has helped him. He's given him food and the sword of Goliath. And Saul's response to this news is pretty swift and dramatic. He summons Ahimelech and all of his family who are priests, the whole family of Ahimelech are priests at Nob, and he accuses them of conspiring with David to kill him. Look at Ahimelech's answer to Saul's accusations in verse 14 with me. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? And who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. 
So essentially what happens here is Saul puts Ahimelech and his whole family, all the priests of Nob, on trial for sedition here. Um, they're traitors, according to Saul. And everything that Ahimelech says here to defend himself is true. It's all true. David is a faithful lawyer. David is Saul's son-in-law. David is captain of his bodyguard. David is honored all this time in Saul's house. Neither David nor Ahimelech nor any of the priests at Nob were plotting against Saul. And everyone gets that except Saul. Everyone understands it except Saul. And instead of listening to the truth that um, Ahimelech tells him here in his defense, Saul does the unthinkable. He does the unthinkable with no respect for the Lord's appointed priests and without any uh, thought of the Lord's will here. He never seeks the Lord's will. He issues an order for their execution. Look at verse 16 with me. And the king said... Uh, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard um, who stood with him, about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Now, I hope you remember, this is the second time that Saul has issued an execution order that his men have refused to follow. You remember back in chapter 14, he issued an execution order for Jonathan, his son, who had eaten the honey uh, after the battle, and Saul ordered his men to kill Jonathan. And what did they do? They said no. We're not going to do that. Um, and now he irreverently and irresponsibly issued an order to kill the Lord's priests. And both times his men, his people had better sense and a better sense of righteousness than their king. The only one who doesn't is Dagiya Edomite. He's not an Israelite. These are not his priests. He has no sense and certainly no sense of righteousness. So I think he says, hey, who cares? I'm going to do it. And he follows Saul's orders. He kills all 85 of the priests of Ahimelech's family. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He goes on to slay the entire village of Nob. Look at verse 19 with me. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, Child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Now, this is not only a tragedy. It is a tragic example of Saul's whole life. Because Saul had failed to do God's will back in chapter 15. Do you remember that? When he ignored God's order to kill all the Amalekites and their king and do away with all their livestock. And what happened? Samuel shows up and says... What's the bleeding of the sheep I hear here? Um, one theologian I read summed it up. What Saul failed to do righteously to the Amalekites, he unrighteously did to the citizens of Nob. It's a great summary of Saul's life as a man, unfortunately, who continually refuses to submit to God's authority in his life. He always stubbornly chooses his own way his own will, his own path, instead of God's will. Let's finish our story. Let's see what David does here. Look at verse 20. 
But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Dagi the Edomite was there, he would surely tell Saul, I've occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. So Abiathar is the only remaining priest, and he is a refugee now too, and he reaches David with the story, the sad story of Saul's slaughter. And clearly in that moment, David is convicted. Do you remember those moments in your life when you've been convicted of sin? They're kind of like lightning strikes and you realize, I did that. That was me. That's what happens to David here. He's clearly convicted of his sin. He sees his role in this horrible outcome. He didn't wield the sword. He wasn't there. But he recognizes that his deception of Ahimelech um, he recognizes that has played a major role in the slaughter of the Lord's own priests here. If Ahimelech had known the truth that David was running from Saul instead of serving Saul, Ahimelech might have responded differently and not put his whole community in the crosshairs of the king. But there is a ray of light in this dark story. Although David's deception played a role in the deaths of the 85 priests, it is a ray of light that he doesn't shrug off that role. He doesn't de deny his involvement in that. He doesn't even just wallow in his sin of deception. David is a guy that steps up. David is convicted of his sin. He steps up before the Lord, and he takes responsibility here for protecting um, and providing for Abiathar, this only surviving priest. And God actually uses David's mistake here to do something interesting to accomplish his will. Because as David becomes the protector and provider uh, of the priesthood with Abiathar, Abiathar actually becomes the founding member of David's priestly staff that will eventually serve David during his reign as king and serve in the tabernacle worship in Jerusalem. Um, David's deception also had another interesting unexpected result in God's economy as well. Um, it results in the fulfillment of God's curse on the house of Eli. If you remember back to uh, the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, Eli was the high priest when Samuel was born because Eli allowed his sons to become corrupt and dishonor God. Uh, back in chapter two, God takes the priesthood from Eli. He gives it to Samuel and he pronounces a curse on Eli's family. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 2.31 on your verse sheet. Behold, the days are coming, this is God speaking to Eli, when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And that's what happens here. Saul's slaughter of the 85 priests, as disturbing as it is, is actually fulfillment of God's prophecy to Eli uh, because Ahimelech is Eli's great-grandson and all the priests at Nod that were killed are from the house of Eli. Now, our teachable moment here from David is to follow his example, isn't it, of taking responsibility 
for our sin. You know, the truth is, ladies, we are all sinners saved by grace, every single one of us in this room. And as much as we regret that, as much as it feels crummy to say, hey, I'm a sinner, it does mean that we all have sin in our life, um, even as we're being sanctified. And there are repercussions to our sin out there in the world around us, in our families, in our friendships, maybe in our workplace. You know, there are three kinds of sinners in the world. I don't know whether you've ever thought about this. There are three kinds of sinners in the world. There are those people that commit sin, and they are always oblivious to it. They never think about it. They never own it. They always think of themselves as good people. They're not sinners. They're good people. Then they're the second kind of sinners. They're Saul, who when his sin was pointed out to him time and time again by Samuel, what does Saul always do? He blames someone else. He just blames someone else. When you think about the time that he did not follow God's will and put to death all the Amalekites, did he take responsibility for that? No, he blamed the people. He said, those people made me do it. They made me keep those sheep. I needed to keep that king. It wasn't his fault. Saul never took responsibility for his sin when it was pointed out to him. And you know, since you, if you never own your own sin, you can't repent of it, can you? If you don't think you have sin in your life, you're never repentant. But David is our great example of that third kind of sinner because he's convicted of his sin the moment he hears about the deaths of those priests and his actions of stepping into those consequences of sin show his regret and hopefully his repentance as well. David has a lesson for us. It's a great lesson, actually, that when we are convicted of sin in our life, and I hope and pray we are all those women that uh, don't ignore sin or blame others, but we're convicted of our sin, we need to do the same thing David did. We need to show our regret and our repentance by stepping up and taking responsibility for that sin, no matter what it looks like. You know, it may simply be going and asking forgiveness. It may be uh, making financial restitution for something that you've done. Um, the truth is, as I said before, if we don't step up and take responsibility for sin, it means we haven't been repentant. We have to own and be responsible for our sin. And when we do, just like David's story, when we recognize that sin and step into it, whatever it looks like, God in his mercy can use our mistakes, can't he? God uses our mistakes, whether they're big or small, and he uses them to bless others, just like he blessed Abiathar here, um, to accomplish his will. Look at Proverbs 28, 13 on your sheet. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Let's do it. Let's be women who step up who own our sin, take responsibility for it, show our repentance and our regret so that God can use even our sin, even our mistakes to accomplish his will. Let's be teachable. Pray with me. Father, you are a great and a good God, a God that loves us and cares for us, 
I thank you um, that you have so many lessons to teach us. I thank you that you continue to walk along beside us, uh, show us our sin, allow us the opportunity to uh, repent and to step into the responsibility of our sin. Father, I thank you for all the women in this room. They love you. They love your word. Um, they are a light in a dark world. Would you give them your favor and your great blessings? And I pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.